Hello and a very warm welcome to the latest Lancet podcast, Richard Lane on Friday, November the 7th. A very different issue of the Lancet this week reflected in this podcast. It is 100 years since the dreadful global conflict, World War One, And this issue of the Lancet is very much a themed issue reflecting on the legacy of that conflict in terms of medicine and health. There's a three-part series covering antimicrobials, psychiatry, and the management of amputation and limb pain. We have a research article and a case report concerning a bacillus causing dysentery, and a video infographic that is well worth a look, and a great overview of that legacy in the comment section of the journal as well. But for this podcast, we're going to focus on series paper two, and that concerns the World War I legacy and psychiatry. Let's hear from our interviewee, one of the authors of the paper, Introducing himself. I'm Edgar Jones, Professor of the History of Psychiatry and Medicine in the King's Centre for Military Health Research at King's College London. Professor Jones, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. It sounds like it's too easy to assume that this ghastly conflict that was World War One and the description of shell shock and the Rivers paper in The Lancet, that, that heralded sort of the beginning of modern psychiatry, but you're saying that's not the case. I think World War One gathers a lot of physicians together to study psychological breakdown. But a lot is already understood before this conflict begins. For example, Charcot at the Salpetriere is treating veterans of the Franco-Prussian War in the 1880s. And he's already beginning to understand the nature of functional physical symptoms. And indeed, the British themselves had encountered strange disorders after the Boer War. And so it began a process of thinking about these uh, issues and trying to treat the psychiatric casualties of war. You also mentioned in your paper about the soldiers' experience, and you, obviously in the introduction you, you, you explained the toll in terms of the figures of death and morbidity caused by World War I. And you talk about the soldiers' experiences at that time, and you've obviously reviewed the literature of that time extensively, as being culturally mediated. What do you mean by that? That's, that's intriguing. We looked at random samples of servicemen and their medical records to see how shell shock expressed itself. And it doesn't present in the typical PTSD presentation of today. They come along with a range of functional physical symptoms such as chest pain, difficulty breathing, aches, joint pain, muscle pain. And I think what they have to do is present their distress in a way that will gain the attention of a medical officer. And if a soldier comes to a regimental aid post and says, I've got headaches or I'm not thinking straight or I have difficulty sleeping, they're not going to be taken as seriously as if they come and say, I've got palpitations, my, my chest aches. Straight away, the doctor's going to think there's something important here. So what they're doing is they're using a, an accepted language of serious medical complaints so that they get attention and they're likely to get treatment. So the state of medical knowledge, what people fear, what they think is important, determines the way that psychiatric casualties present on the battlefield and immediately afterwards. So very much the medicalization then of psychiatry. So rather than World War One, War One being sort of seen as the beginning stage of, of what we call modern psychiatry now, perhaps it's more accurate to say it was the point at which psychiatry and the rest of medicine started converging. Is that right? I think that's true because... In a way, there's, there's two groups of military psychiatrists. There are those who are deployed to France 
who have a military imperative. Their job is to get as many soldiers back to the front line as possible. But then the other group, which operates in the UK, are more concerned about returning men to useful jobs, to physical function. And they have a sort of a deeper interest in psychological processes. In a way, there's a range of goals being pursued from medical officers whose who's primary aim is a military one of getting as many casualties back to the front line as possible in France. And another group, the ones in the UK have a different agenda. They're more interested in understanding the deeper conflicts of the soldier and what they can do to restore them to an active role in civilian society. And they've got more time to explore psychological conflict and to experiment with treatments. Also, intriguingly, you talk about forward psychiatry, and I'll ask you just to, to clarify what you mean by forward psychiatry. It's uh, effectiveness from World War One onwards, but actually you're saying that this claim is actually inflated. So tell us what you mean here. Forward psychiatry was a technique devised by the French in December 1915, and it was a way of treating psychiatric casualties as close to the front line as possible. There wasn't a lot of science. It was very much food, rest, reassurance, and a little bit of graduated exercise to get the soldiers back in the mindset of being a frontline serviceman. It was designed to prevent troops being invalided in large numbers back to base hospitals where they were likely to be uh, held in beds for quite long periods of time. So it was an acute intervention designed to turn around as many as possible in a short period of time. The problem with it is that the doctors who invent it then make really dramatic claims as to how many servicemen they can return to active duty within a few weeks. We see reports in the Lancet of the BMJ of 70 to 90% of servicemen admitted to forward psychiatric units being returned to frontline duty. We looked at the admission and discharge books of one of these units and found that the reality was that only 17% went immediately back to frontline duty. The vast majority, 35%, went to convalescent depots and another 20% to base duties. So they're deliberately inflating their results under pressure from military scrutiny. And the problem is that they then set the bar very high for subsequent wars. So if you're a military psychiatrist in the Second World War and you're returning 30% to duty, that looks really bad in comparison to these published First World War figures. So it takes quite a long time for the military to adjust to the propaganda of the First World War. Again, returning to, I suppose, what did come out clearly in as a result of conflict in World War One, So you have shell shock, but first being identified and co the term coined in 1915, but jumping forward in time, and of course, this is also really relevant, and that is the question, how, uh, how relevant is the historical look back now, 100 years at World War I, today's modern warfare? I want to discuss that in a moment. But it is interesting, though, isn't it, that shell shock was identified in 1915, but PTSD, which is a sort of modern-day translation of shell shock, I guess, was only accepted, I think, by the American Psychiatric Institute in 1980. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I suppose the answer to that is that we're not quite comparing like with like. Shell shock would be an acute breakdown on the battlefield of psychiatric casualty, which in a sense was recognized in the Franco-Prussian War, to some extent even in the Crimean War. And in the Second World War, they call it battle exhaustion. So the frontline breakdown is always recognized and treated. What 
PTSD represents is a longer term, more chronic disorder identified later on. And that takes much longer to understand and explore. So the shell shock that we're talking about in 1915 is a form of immediate breakdown which the military have to address. They can't ignore it because they're losing too many men from the front line. I mean, that's acute. That's just happening in real time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Whereas PTSD is a long, longer-term situation, and it obviously it's post-traumatic, so it's occurring after, after the trauma on the battlefield. Yeah, because the, the definition of PTSD, uh, in order to qualify for the definition of PTSD, the symptoms have to be present for more than 28 days. Psychiatrists would be picking up cases of PTSD after they've been invalided from a forward psychiatric unit and may be referred to a base hospital. So there are two separate categories of patients. And the final question, which I have already alluded to, and I should just say the whole, everything we're publishing in this themed issue relating to the centenary of World War One is fascinating. Bringing it forward a century, how do we use knowledge particularly knowledge that we've gained retrospectively from what happened 100 years ago with what we do today in terms of understanding the mental health of combatants in modern-day warfare? I suppose what the First World War does, it presents us with a huge body of evidence because a cross-section of the male population from the age of 18 into, the, into their 40s were exposed to extreme or prolonged danger. And so it gives us a lot of understanding about the behaviour of groups under fire, which we don't get to the same extent today with smaller volunteer regular armies. And the crucial thing that they explored was the behavior of men in groups. Today, I think we're a more individualistic society where the emphasis is on rights rather than duties. But with this data from the First World War, we can study how men within groups, within a defined culture, respond to trauma. And I think by 1917, they'd learned an, a lot about the value of occupational therapy, of men working together in jobs as a way of restoring self-confidence and self-esteem. And I think there's still lessons to be learned from following up longitudinally what happened to veterans from the moment they were invalided from the battlefield through to civilian life. And I think that will give us some lessons for the traumatic experiences that current veterans are working through. Well, I think that's a good point to leave it. That's Professor Edgar Jones on the line from the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London. Thank you very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. Thanks again to Edgar Jones, and I'm sure you'll agree, fascinating listening and reading this week. See you next time.